0: When I think about 2020, a few things come to mind. The COVID-19 pandemic, Black Lives Matter protest, and a major presidential election. Not to mention the ongoing crisis at the U.S.-Mexican border only got worse. There was a lot going on, but it was so clear that all the things were connected, and they weren't happening in isolation. And they're still happening today. There were plenty of folks who brought light to these issues but also talked about actual solutions on how we could do better as a country. These issues also took front and center at the presidential debates.
1: 2020 is heating up. 10 Democratic candidates debated for three hours in Houston, picking on issues including healthcare and immigration.
0: I worked as a senior advisor for Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign, but I wasn't the only one having tough conversations about race, immigration, public safety, and the mental health on a campaign trail. Jonathan Jays Green was doing the exact same thing as the Latinx Outreach Director for Senator Elizabeth Warren's team. And it's something that Jonathan has been doing for a long time. Back in 2016, they started Black Network, a collective of undocumented black people organizing to build power and have access to more resources. This work is personal for Jonathan, who's undocumented and unafraid. They're queer, they're trans, they're Afro-Latinx. They are all of these things. People often say that the United States is a country made up of immigrants, and we often only talk about immigration as a Mexican issue. But what 2020 made clear, and what we continue to see as our Haitian sisters and siblings are being violated and turned away as they look for safety, we know that immigration is an issue that affects all of us, and it touches every part of our society. And that's why I love talking to Jonathan so much. Now they're the vice president of programs at Marguerite Casey Foundation. So we got a chance to talk about their work in philanthropy and also the journey to get there. So let's get into this. My interview with Jonathan J. Green. Talk to us, Jonathan, about Panama. People always think of immigrants as being Mexicans who come across the border and about Mexico and all the culture in Mexico. What do you remember about Panama.
1: When I think about Panama and being a kid back there, a couple of things really resonate. One is a really strong sense of family. Like my mom grew up with seven sisters, so we had a really big family. So like all the cousins, you know, all the parties, the birthdays, the holidays, all of the things. You just remember feeling like really surrounded by community in that way. That's one thing that comes up too, like a really deep love and appreciation for, like, beaches and, like, rivers. Like, when my grandparents still to this day live in Nombre de Dios, which is one, one of the coastal areas of Panama where a lot of Black folks settled In the beginning, maybe not being happy about spending time with my grandparents, but then eventually being really happy about getting to spend time on the rivers and on the beaches and getting to eat my delicious grandmother's food. Like if I close my eyes, I could like smell the coconut rice, the like delicious meat that my grandmother seasoned, the like potato salad, the like fried plantain um, on like a Sunday afternoon where like the whole family gathers at my grandmother's house. Those are the memories that come to mind when I think about my childhood in Panama.
0: Jumping forward a little bit, you were 13 when you and your family moved from Panama. You moved to Maryland, of all places, and you ain't in L.A., you ain't in Dallas, or in New York. You're in Silver Springs, Maryland. What was that experience like?
1: I just remember being just really confused. I moved in December, which meant that the really thin jacket that I thought uh, was going to keep me safe. It was, did not <laughs> as I arrived at Dallas Airport and it is snowing and I'm like, what is happening? Um, and for me and for our story, like part of how we ended up in, in Silver Spring was because my uncle, uh, who was serving in the U.S. Army, was about to be deployed to Afghanistan for a year. And he had asked for his brother, my dad, to come support him, take care of his belongings while he was away. And it was like a really odd thing because he like, one second, my mom was like, yeah, I'll send her husband, my dad, to go to the U.S. to support my uncle. This next second, all of us went to Florida Spring, and all of us were going to, you know, live here. So I just remember being like, lots has happened really fast. I don't really understand what's happening, but, like, like, my parents are here, so I guess I'm okay.
0: As you settle in in this community, tell me, for people who may not know what Silver Spring, Maryland looks like, what did the community look like around you?
1: I love Silver Spring so much um, because it is such a diverse place of, like, racial, ethnic, religious, income, everything, everywhere you can think of. It's there in Silver Spring. And, you know, sort of living there, going to, like, middle school, so- cycle middle school, all it was is c- other people of color there isn't a really large Panamanian community really anywhere in the States. Uh, The bigger clusters are like New York and Atlanta. So for me, I think sort of coming to this community, sort of like seeing lots of newness and trying to process it, but also trying to figure out like, so how do I fit into all of this, given that there isn't an established Panamanian community? You know, and I think As we know, as some folks might know, uh, the D.C. area is one of the top two places where Central Americans and Salvadorans in particular live. So it was like a very it is luckily a very Central American heavy community. So I feel like I I was able to like find community eventually through like the, the broader community. But, you know, in so many ways, and I think this actually is part of the broader story of me is that I've had to like both create and define what community looks like for myself.
0: So today you identify as Afro-Panamanian, Afro-Latinx, but growing up, how did your family identify and how did they talk about race?
1: Yeah, it's so complicated. My parents always had a real big pride being Panamanian, right? To me, now I understand and I have a context of knowing that I see Panama as a Black nation. Right? like thinking about the influx of Caribbean and Afro-Caribbean folks to Panama historically, including that of my grandparents. I think of Panama as a Black nation. You know, when I was younger, I don't my parents didn't have as that same analysis. I think they were just like really proud to be Panamanian, you know, sort of like learning and adjusting to <laughs> this mantle of like broader Latinidad that, that was like sort of offered the time and like trying to wrestle with what it means and how we fit in it. I at times wish that my, that we had talked about race in much sharper terms uh, as a kid versus having to like discover it and make sense of it on my own. Mostly because I lived, I grew, I was born and grew up in Colón, which is one of the provinces of Panama. That's where most of the black people landed, you know, when they migrated to Panama and that's where we live. And in many ways uh, that province uh, suffers from many of the things that is associated, and the ways in which structural racism shows up in, you know, black cities, black communities here in the states and abroad. So, you know, the question of like underfunding public institutions, uh, roads, uh, healthcare systems that are failing, the way in which the corporations have a hold on our economy. I mean, like, there's like, it's like a textbook example of like what happens to black people in, in regions. And that in my in some sense, like to me it's like I cannot separate that from being Panamanian like to be Panamanian to me is to be black to be from Colon, to eat our food to dance our dances. but I think to be able to arrive at this analysis, it's been like a year's long process of like trying researching, talking to elders, so I think that's what my process has looked like.
0: Well, you have been such a steadfast advocate for all things immigration and for a lot of people, in my opinion, who have not been spoken about, like Afro-Latinos, Latinx, queer communities, like all of the things that you have been not only a leader, but sometimes the only leader in those spaces. I see that. I've seen your work, and I see you in those places. I'm curious because everybody is so different. When did that light go off for you when you realized that I needed to do something, obviously, the way that you said you had to discover on your own, your own immigration, you wish you had heard sharper terms? For young activists out there, how did you discover that? that? And what story could you tell that would help them of when the light went off, when you realized you needed to be active in this space?
1: As I'm thinking about my journey and the ways in which I've been really privileged to be able to contribute to our broader fight for justice, what I think about is how oftentimes it didn't feel like a choice. You know, I think most, a lot of the work that I've done around immigration, around racial justice, around queer liberation has been either deeply disappointed to be kind or disgusted and upset and angry uh, on the other end at the fact that our communities our very, my very own communities have oftentimes disappointed me and failed to meet the mark. So when I think about my work around Black immigrants and talking about anti-Blackness in both immigrant communities, Latinx communities, and the immigrant system in this country. Part of that was really rooted in my work uh, when I was in community college and organizing for the DREAM Act at the state level back in Maryland. There was a crew of folks, young African-American high school students at the time, who... You know, we were in the middle of this campaign. I went to share my story with them. I will never forget that I felt a little bit inadequate. Like, here I am showing up to this failing Baltimore City High School, like literally falling apart, asking them for their help on my journey to education when, quite frankly, I had not showed up to for young Black people in the city of Baltimore prior to that moment. And I pushed through. I shared my story. What happened then really changed my life. Those young African American kids in Baltimore City took on the Dream Act as their own campaign. They were knocking on doors, holding press conferences, just like really went out out of their ways to really support this work. And on election day, because we were working on a ballot referenda, I asked one of the leaders in particular, I I said, Thank you for all of your work, but like, how come you took it to this level? And what she said to me, I think really continues to shape my analysis. She said that she knew what it was like to be on the other side of a system that did not recognize her worth, and she wanted to fight injustice wherever she saw it. So at 16-year-old, Danya is her name, she taught me about solidarity, intersectionality, all of these like fancy terms we talked about. The most simplest of terms, she just lived it. So, from that moment on, I was like, cool, I have not shown up in the past, but I am here now. We gal are my people, you know? So, that was back in 2011, 2012. To fast forward to 2015, when Freddie Gray was murdered by the Baltimore Police Department and all of us were taken to the streets protesting the injustice, you know, I remember being really disappointed that I didn't feel like my fellow non black Latinx community, my fellow immigrant rights communities just had not shown up in a meaningful way for Black people, for those very same young Black people in the city of Baltimore. So I know that that was like a moment for me of like heartbreak, anger, disappointment. That's not to say that there weren't other or organizations who had done similar work or had done work around it, but it hadn't been done the way that I thought was really needed. I had to step up, right? And, you know, I was fortunate to be one of a crew of folks who got to co-found, and I got to be the executive director of the undocu Black Network, uh, which is an organization that fights at the intersection of racial justice, immigrant justice and criminal justice, really fighting for a freer world, right? And that has been quite the journey to, to go from like being angry about uh, something that I saw, but then to taking the next step. So if there are folks who are out there, especially young people, who are continuously disappointed in our movement leaders, political leaders, uh, business leaders, uh, and how the systems are failing our people. This is your moment. You know, what I say to them is that if you think that it needs to be done in a different way, go do it. Go do it. Go build the support. Go build the, the platform. Be about building this movement so that we can get closer to justice.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that story. Speaking of DACA, where were you at like in your life when DACA executive order actually came down?
1: Another one of the through lines of my life has been my relationship with the American dream. And as an immigrant, as a newcomer to this country now, a part of it. I think we as a country do a really good job of packaging and selling this American dream. This is the land of opportunity. This is the land of the brave and the free. This is the land where if you work hard, everything is accessible to you. And being like a 13-year-old, I was like, oh, cool, great. (laughs) Happy that that's where I'm at. I'm just going to work hard and everything will be great. And as you can imagine by my tone, I think the past... 10 to 15 years in particular have been years of heartbreak uh, of like realizing the ways in which that dream is not a reality for so many people that I care about, including for my family and myself. But I think when I I bring this up in this context, because thinking about college, right, like it was like the thing that I was really excited about, you know, oh, I just have to get good grades. I'm going to be able to go to college. And, you know, I was able to gain admissions to multiple schools that I really wanted to go to. And at the end of the day, I am the child of a construction worker and a babysitter. I could not afford to go to any of the four-year schools. And I'm just deeply, deeply grateful for my community college that they saw the talent and the potential in me and still opened their doors to me to be able to attend. So when I when I go back to the DACA executive order, I was, I was a student at Montgomery College. And at that point, I had already started fighting for immigrant justice. Was you know We had won the DREAM Act. And I think I I one deeply grateful for all the activists who led the fight at the federal level to make DACA a reality. I think that for me, I remember the like time when I like heard on the radio that it was gonna happen. We've been talking about the potential for a while, but um once you've ha- you've had your heart broken by this country, you know not to get too excited. So part of me was like yeah 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 maybe <laughs> and like what we knew what we kept hearing from the white house is that they were they were like no it's not possible no it's not possible but i remember like i was driving on my way to i think like an internship meeting and i was driving on 495 which is a, the beltway back in the dc area and i just remember like hearing it and like freezing <laughs> like hey, I'm driving at like 55 miles per hour probably 65. Yeah. Harry Napolitano
0: announced new actions my administration will take to mend our nation's immigration policy to make it more fair, more efficient,
1: and more just, specifically for certain young people, sometimes called dreamers. And just like hearing it and being like, is this real? Right? And you know, and all of the feelings that come with it, like the joy of like, oh, things are going to change for me. And also look at all of the carve outs, right, that come with any kind of program that provides protection for folks and thinking about like, oh, the friends that I know that would not qualify. So, you know, it's just like, it's always part of the process. But that's really where I was. And that's what I was feeling at the time.
0: Before we take a deeper dive into your organizing work, Jonathan, I want to take a point of personal privilege. I want to ask you about something that I really enjoyed learning about you. So one of the benefits of DACA was that you got to study abroad in the Galapagos Islands. As a poor kid growing up in East Texas, I loved watching the animal shows, National Geographic, seeing all those lizards and big sea creatures on my TV. So the Galapagos Islands has always been high on the places that I wanted to visit. What was it like leaving the U.S. for the very first time?
1: Okay. So be, I, I love that you're, I never get asked about this. I love that you're asking me about this. Um, before I answer, I'm going to give you a little bit more context. So Went to my community college for two years. We won the DREAM Act, but because opponents put it on our ballot referendum, it did not go into law. So when I, it was time for me to transfer from my community college, Montgomery College. Um, it was actually more affordable to go to a private school <laughs> than to go to, take a bus to the nearest public school because that's the state we lived in, the country we lived in. At the time, so I went to Goucher, and one of the, the Goucher's requirements is that every student must go abroad before graduating. So everyone had to go, and I was like, (laughs) no, no, we're not, right? So to me, once uh, DACA came into place and I saw, like, friends going abroad, I was like, you know, I think this might be my only opportunity to go abroad. Uh, So I got to go to the Galapagos Island, and as part of this Environmental Sustainability Program at Goucher, And when I think about just like that timeline, so much disbelief comes to I'm like my body is like full of disbelief of like I did that. (laughs) I remember being like really scared, leaving and coming back. You know, I remember sort of like having an organizing plan in place just in case. So you get a work permit with your DACA social security card, and then to be able to travel abroad under the DACA program, you have to apply for what is called advanced parole. So basically you tell the US government. Hey, I want to go abroad for these particular reasons. You can only go abroad for educational, humanitarian, and I think maybe education, employment, and humanitarian reasons. So I went for educational reasons. Basically, you said to the U.S. government, I'm going to be out. Of, I want to travel and come back on these states. And then with the paper that they gave you, it says essentially allow entrance back, but it's not guaranteed. Like that could change at any point. Right. So it was a risk. It was not guaranteed that they were going to let me in. But for me, I was like, I'm going to do it <laughs> and I'm going to be organized. You know, so I had a plan of like contacting my member of Congress saying like, hey, I'm going to be out of the country, wanting to make sure that they had all my documentation, that I had to fill out the appropriate forms. Should I need to them to make a call if they did not want to let me in? So I think the kind of like planning you have to do as an undocumented person now in hindsight, I'm like, oh, that most like twenty 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 one year olds are not thinking about all these, <laughs> so I think that was one aspect of it. I think the second is to think about what it was like to go abroad being undocumented with a crew of folks. Yeah, I was the only undocumented kid on that trip, so i think I can't I think it was like ten to fifteen people from my class that got to go on this trip with like two professors. And yeah, I was like, in so many ways, I had to explain to everyone like, hey, I have DACA, this is what it means. I'm taking a risk here. And I still like vividly remember walking back, on the way back. So we went, we had a, a layover in Panama. I, I wanted to get out and peak, but I was like, they're not gonna let me back in. <laughs> let me just stay on board. And had an incredible like three weeks in Ecuador. I am obsessed with that country. Cannot wait to go back and, you know, hang out with people. But on the way back, I clearly remember like, you know, needing to get through customs, literally like 20 year old me holding hands with my two professors. They're like, we're going to protect you. They're not (laughs) like they can't protect me from immigration. But just I think I think it speaks to the real love that and bond that I got to build with folks.
0: I think that that's great. And I think that the story is powerful, the way that you let folks know about how the uncertainties happens. And when you talk about being organized and being this 20-year-old kid in your words, not my words, that you're already figuring out how to get things done. But let's jump ahead to 2016. You get back from Ecuador. You become the founding director of UndocuBlack Network, UBN. Talk to me about UBN, what UBN does but also why an organization specifically focused on black undocumented people and why it was so needed then and now more than ever.
1: UndocuBlack will always be like one of my first loves. And I think UndocuBlack for me was the answer to the deep injustice that I saw, like being really disappointed at the anti-blackness in the immigrant rights movement. Both in how we organized, also in terms of the policies we fought for, and how we neglected the needs of Black immigrants, you know, I personally feel so indebted to African Americans and the broader like Black Power movement for like for tracing the way for like someone like me to be able to be an activist to do the work that I get to do today. And like I felt really strongly that hasn't changed that much, but I think it's getting a little bit better. That like we. We just don't show, like, the immigrant rights movement doesn't show up as much as we should for black folks. I think that's changed somewhat because of the work that a lot of orgs have done. Um, I just love black people so much that I want us all to understand and fight for racial justice, fight for Black liberation with every might of our being. So to me, UndocuBlack was my way of like creating another pathway for that to be possible. So thinking about Freddie Gray being like the, the activating moment to have seen how we acted, how we showed up then to now see how our broader movement and our people showed up in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd. Like, there was a really tangible difference, right? Um, And to me, it just really means... That like part of our work is then like trying to make sure that people are drawing those connections that are not forgetting about the people at the margins. But yes, that was that's part of like what we wanted to do at Undocu Black. <laughs> I stepped down as a director back in 2019, and we now have uh, Patrice Lauren, who is leading the organization, doing an incredible job. We are constantly under surveillance, especially those of us who are Black and Muslim. Harmful policies target our people and criminalize our identity. But to me, to think about how they're now taking it on their own pathway and their own vision and shaping it to their own to their own plans and their own strategy. It, to me, it's really beautiful because the way that I think about leadership is that it's not just about one person. Uh, it is about a group of people and it is cyclical and people take turns. Right. So I'm really glad to be able to see them flourishing.
0: So you and I both were on the campaign trail in 2020. And a lot of people saw your leadership on full display when you served as the director of Latinx Outreach for Senator Elizabeth Warren. I remember watching you on TV, literally sitting on my couch, clapping, thinking, now these are the kind of voices I need to see more of elevated on my TV set. What were some of the lessons from your time at UndocuBlack that carried over to this new role?
1: So at the end of my time at UndocuBlack, I was, I'm honest, really burnt out. I call on Black, my first love because I really gave it all I had, which in so many ways meant that I put it above my personal, my, my physical, mental, emotional well-being. I gave that org everything in me. Um, and I'm really proud and glad that I did. And at the end, I was like, I don't have anything else left. Um, and I plan to take a break. But I think hearing from me, hearing Senator Warren's vision of this country just really spoke to me. So when this job came up and this opportunity came up, I don't think I had to realize then, but yeah, I was not the traditional choice for that job, right? Like being Black, being queer, being non-binary and trans, you know, <laughs> you know it was a real honor to be able to play that role. And what I definitely carried from Black was like this perspective on folks who are at the margins, like thinking about every time we had a policy conversation, thinking about how do we make sure that our folks are most impacted are shaping what the policy looks like. And we a- end up having, you know, something that addresses people's need. I think it's like something particularly that I brought from UndocuBlock. I think the second thing is like really thinking about Governing and like what it means for like a movement to have governing power over this country and the institutions. And when I went to the campaign, I was like, oh, I'm here to put forth the demands of our movement in this political campaign, in this presidential stage, and you know, had a really hard time, I'll be honest, you know. And really, I think the experience was really helpful for me to like right-size and sharpen my understanding of power in this country. And particularly around resources, right? Like around like budgets and money and investments uh, that it takes to actually govern, right? For example, like one of the things that the Senator really ran on was the wealth tax. And prior to that campaign, I'm like, yeah, tax the rich, you know, cool. We should do that. (laughs) But like, I think something that I really appreciated that the Senator did was really building like a solid plan and tying it to like, direct things that I cared about. So tying it to education, tying it to childcare and all of the ways that like had a racial justice lens. And then to see the like swift backlash from like millionaires crying on television (laughs) because, you know, someone wanted to tax them to pay for (laughs) basic uh, public infrastructure. I think just like really opened my eyes to the broader ties to economic justice and how all of these fights are connected. And, you know, I think that really carries to today of like how I want us as progressives, us as people who believe in freedom and justice, to be able to govern over this country. And that's not going to happen until we have a redistribution of wealth and until we have an actual strong public infrastructure that is able to take care of people's basic needs. So I think that's really what I've been able to carry, bring forth from that experience.
0: I want you to know that, uh, I'm looked at a lot of times as as the old Latino guard and I am, uh, but with the awareness of what the young people in my life have taught me. But there's one thing that I've known beyond a shadow of a doubt, which I think makes your experience so important for the movement with Elizabeth Warren, is that you and it's good for. An old gray beard like me to have folks like you in those positions, not just to be seen, it's easy to be seen as that director. But now you have an understanding of where the white power base of America really is in the power of policy in campaigns. And my terms are and what you delivered for our community was this representation in the room. You didn't win every battle. None of us do. But you were there at the level you were at to say, this is what we would like to see. And let's figure out how to get there. I just find that we would have more policy victories, more political victories if there's more black, brown, queer, trans, non-binary, all of the above diversity at a big level that is more in the inclusion area of where the voices are there? Because I think the policy would be different.
1: I really struggle with the politics of representation, if I'm honest, mostly because I have had roles where like it was just for the photo op. It was just like, let's have this person on this task force so that we can say we got a black one or like whatever identity that, pe- that is helpful for people. And what I really have a strong desire to only do from now on is to be able, like, whenever I step in a room, I always want to make sure that I have structural power, mm-hmm. budgetary power that I have, like, hiring and firing power, like, those are the, those are the places that I, and I think you are doing an excellent job, like, really laying this out for people to think about, like, you know, if you don't have the right folks with these types of power, then, like, actually, it is shallow, right? And I think for me, with my time on the campaign, like I, for a good chunk of my time, I was the highest ranking Latinx person. And that was great in some ways, but also it it just was insufficient, right? And I think thinking about how we worked and how we pushed and we worked with different people in and out of the campaign to like really transform it. You know, I, at the end, I'm proud of the work that we did. And also I'm like, you know, this could have been different this could have been different. And I think about now that, you know, that I'm working in philanthropy and actually having the power to direct investments, I'm like, this is actually what the power is. And I want folks to be really clear about like being able to distinguish shallow representation politics with actual structural power.
0: So after the campaign, you joined the Marguerite Casey Foundation, where you're currently the vice president of programs, which is a whole other beast. You know, in an interview earlier this year with Nation Swell, you were quoted as saying, stay with me, philanthropies and foundations spend the bulk of their time focused on due diligence. But what the fuck is a safe investment in a crumbling system within a crumbling global economy?
1: So as a former executive director of a nonprofit, I feel like there was a whole facade that was presented to me about foundations, that like it was really strategic and thoughtful and blah, blah, blah. And there were all these restraints. And then I get to this foundation, the Marguerite Casey Foundation, and really lucky to be a part of the executive team, you know, under the leadership of our president, Dr. Carmen Rojas. And, you know, realize that most of these requirements, most of these bureaucracy that foundations impose on nonprofits are made up, are like created to appease some foundation's staff ego about their uh, need for (laughs) self-importance and not actually real constraints, right? So what we've done at the Margaret Casey Foundation, we've been able to lead by example. We eliminated grant reports. We made the application simpler. We cut it by half. We made our grant amounts transparent. Like you you can tell, there's a whole chart that depending on how much revenue you've had, you can tell what size grant you will likely get if you are in, if you are the type of organization that we fund. So we're trying to be more transparent about what our strategy is so that people don't have to like demystify it but a lot of time is spent on this question of due diligence and what due diligence means more often than not is like foundations not wanting to invest in black indigenous communities of color but more importantly and this definitely is even, comes even more into play when it comes to black indigenous communities of color led organizations that are progressive, that are abolitionists, that uh, that have like a political analysis, like those are the folks that people question the most. So I'm like, let's <laughs> that's some BS, and we're not about it. Like it just funders have personally. I don't believe that philanthropy should exist. Like I believe that the the existence of the whole philanthropic sector is the result, of inequitable tax policies that have allowed people to hoard wealth. Right. So at the you know, while we still have it, we should use all of these resources to fund community organizers across the country, at the, especially at the local level that are working to reshape and build our economy and our democracy to their liking, to, to the image and likeness, to uh, that are hoping and working to, you know, abolish uh, our carceral system. Like, I think that's really where the money should go. And by and large, the money is not going to those places. So I'm hoping to use. This work, this post that I have at the Margaret Casey Foundation, the team that we're getting to build um, and the work that we get to do to move us in that direction.
0: Jonathan, I think that it's important that people know that you're being so intentional. I think that it's important for folks to know that this is not easy when you start talking about money and power and structure, you know, to question anything is hard. So know that I know that and I know that the listeners know that and we appreciate what you're doing. I want to end with this, that... You know, of course, that the podcast is called Nuestro, and it's called Nuestro for a reason. I want it to be a show where people listen and learn about our community. And in my mind, our community is Nuestro, ours. It's ours. But all of us look at ours in a different way. So I want to know what Nuestro means to you and your comunidad.
1: To me, it means solidarity. To me, When I think about our community and our people, the biggest longing that I have for us is that we reject the false choice that white supremacy offers us, that we can move ahead, that we can advance personally, If we conform to the systems of power, if we are enabling participants of anti-blackness, if we are enabling participants of transphobia, uh, homophobia, and all of the other phobias, right? So to me, when I think about my people, my community, my chosen family, those are the people that are choosing solidarity over white supremacy, that are choosing to sort of fight for each other, that are choosing to honor... Uh, our gifts, our communities, treasured history, and our choosing to reimagine uh, who we get to be, right? And our choosing to believe that another world is possible.
0: Well, I appreciate it so much. It means something to me personally, and I know your time is valuable. So thank you for joining us on Nuestro Pod.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: To learn more about Jonathan, check out our show notes. Nuestro is a production of Solidarity Strategies. Gabrielle Horton is our executive producer. Cynthia Pematel is our lead producer, and Kevin Liu is our sound engineer. Our theme music is composed by Joel Rodriguez. If you want to hear more episodes like this, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. It's going to be a new episode every week. And most important, don't forget to follow me, at Chuck Rocha, on the Twitters. Adios, and until next week.